Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, houseplants, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And today, I'm going to be covering pet-safe houseplants and a saucy yaw. A saucy yaw. All right. And I will be talking about flowers and crystals that are good for your spring altar. And then I'm going to hit you with some whiplash and talk about why crystals might not be the most ethical purchase on your supplies list. So... But before we get into all of that, uh, I just want to say it was a beautiful full moon last night, even though I didn't really get to see it. I felt it uh, was was up late. Did you do anything fun for the full moon, Shannon? Uh, no, because I was we were dealing with our new kitten. So it was oh, good. That, it was, that, it was that's a nice something night, fun for the yeah. full moon. Yeah. Hanging out. With it is. Hexes. Yeah. We have a new new little kitty. His name is Hexus. Yeah, he's um. He's a little, he's got a smoke coat, so he's very cute. Uh, he's also, like, super affectionate. He's warming up to Willow and Samson, but he's, like, already, like, following me and Eric around and stuff, so he's going to fit right in. Oh, love, love, love that. Love him. And I'm obsessed with my <laughs> uh, little little kitty nephew. Um, but, okay, so... At the time of this episode airing, Pisces season is in full swing. The full moon was last night uh, as of writing this, and it was glorious. And spring is just around the corner. And if you keep an altar in your home, this might be a good time to start paying homage to our favorite goddesses of the spring, Persephone and Ostara. Uh, So... The obvious thing here is wildflowers are not going to go amiss if they're available in your area. I know we have beautiful wildflowers here in Texas. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of an obvious one, right? But uh, I. Yeah, that feels a little like on the nose, but also it's it's always nice to like go local when sourcing so, stuff for your altar. So it's absolutely. like it's obvious, but it's always a good reminder. Yeah, and I personally, I like to put out a few branches of red bud this time of year because they grow all over Austin and the like sort of dark colored branches with the red buds. They turn into pink flowers, by the way. Um, They just look really lovely and uh, really give that strong representation of the spring vibe. Um, But we also wanted to talk a little bit about crystals, do a little crystal roundup. Um, So keeping in mind that we're also talking about some of the questionable ethics of crystal commerce later on. This is like not really an invitation to go out and buy a bunch of crystals. We're just going over a few that you maybe already have and why they would be good for your spring altar. So, well, I was also going to say, it's like, you don't have to go out and buy a bunch, but once we go over like the commerce issues, we'll also maybe give a few suggestions. So if you do want to get some, all hope is not lost if you like pretty no, rocks. No, absolutely not. But uh, the first one that came to my mind, we're talking about spring, uh, lavender amethyst, uh, because it's all about renewing and replenishing those depleted energies. It also shares a color with one of my favorite spring flowers here in Texas. And that is, of course, the beautiful, fragrant mountain laurel flowers. Um, so if you're not familiar so with mountain pretty. laurel, they do, they, they, they're almost like a little tree. And the flowers kind of hang out uh, in, a, in a, a grape shape, you know, like a bunch of grapes or, or almost like wisteria. So they're like bunched together with a little tip and then they're really thick 
up by where the branch is. And it does, it almost yeah. looks like if, if grapes they have, were flowers. They have big wisteria vibes. They do have big wisteria vibes, but they are, but they're not a creeper. They grow on like the bushes, uh, which are almost like little trees. Uh, they can get tr- full tree size, but they do need to be fully mature for that. But love them. And I would love to recommend this flower as an offering for your altar because they do smell beautiful and have that lovely purple color, but they are incredibly toxic. So if you're a pet owner, this is a no-no. Just use lavender instead. Uh, lavender also like not great for pets, but mountain laurel really is uh, ooh, very toxic. I was actually wondering why mountain laurel does not have like soaps and lotions that smell like that. And I found out it's because it's just incredibly oh. <laughs> toxic. So, um, yeah. We also were looking at green tourmaline. Uh, It's a great one here as well for your spring altar. And not only does it reflect the many shades of green in nature right now, or very soon, depending on where you're at, but it also attracts luck, success, abundance, and prosperity. And a bonus for being very common as well, and therefore easier to get ethically. Um, And because of its springtime green color, it's also a favorite among plant lovers as a crystal that will bring the right vibe to your house plants or garden. But I would also be remiss if I didn't mention this crystal's associations with sporting. So spring is great for plant people, but it's also a time when many of us are able to start playing our favorite sports outside finally. So this is a good one for your intense airy season games of tennis uh, that are going to be coming up. So, uh, Y'all, Nick is, like, real into tennis. It's awesome. I I love tennis. It's probably the most fun game to play. I know. I just feel like I wanted to, like, plug that because I don't know that that's something that people would automatically assume about you. But Nick is also, like, good at tennis. Yeah. Yeah. Getting better. We've been practicing a lot lately because the weather's been nice, especially since the snowstorm. But uh, we're also going to throw in moss agate. Uh, I mean, that's like a really obvious one. I think we did that in our last crystal roundup. Um, but we can't miss it here. Yeah. Because since time immemorial, this has been a favored stone for farmers and gardeners. It is known to have a stabilizing and strengthening influence. And it's also used by healers to assist in births, which is something I found out when I was doing the research for this. And I thought it was very appropriate Aww. considering that this is nearly Aries, the baby of the Zodiac season. So this is the birth of the new astrological year. So it's, it seems very on the nose for, for the, uh, the spring altar roundup. Um, and I also thought citrine. And I love it. I'm literally, I'm holding mine. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm just saying I'm literally holding a piece of moss agate right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, just, uh, moss agate. It's that time. It's that time of year. It's moss agate season. Um, but citrine, I thought citrine would be nice here because of its very, very strong associations with the sun. Now, the sun is returning to power in the northern hemisphere. And these crystals, which are often found near amethyst, often have a sunny orange or yellow color if you've never seen a piece of citrine. Uh, And this is also a good one to use in your manifestation work and balancing your solar plexus chakra. So manifestation... It's a new astrological year. It's springtime. 
And I mean, just to be frank, you know, it's like we're rolling out the vaccine. Now is the time to manifest some new stuff in your life because we've been in a rut for a year. So everything seems to be coming to a head with that. So do some manifesting. Yeah. And I would also just I was also going to say, too, about Citrine, um, just kind of like to back it up for just a second is keep an eye out because some Citrine that's sold is actually just heat treated like quartz or amethyst. And so I did see that that when I was doing the research. Yeah. 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 It's like, if that's something that matters to you, just like you're going to be looking for like the color. I mean, the ones that are heat treated tend to be a little bit more orange and I have one that's heat treated and I, I still love it and use it. That's just something that like, if you care, then that's something to look out for personally. I don't care. And actually I was reading something that some people actually really like the, the heat treated citrines because they feel like it, it gives it more energy like that. The energy that goes mm. into making it a citrine kind of like levels up the healing aspects of it. Because that oh, is a lo- like just that. a lot of energy because we're talking like hundreds of degrees it has to be. So Yeah, it's like 400 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, that they have to heat it up to. So it's hot, hot, hot. So, you know, but, I, you know, that was that was someone else's opinion that I saw on a forum about crystals. So I, something to throw in there. But these they made a convincing argument. <laughs> They did. Um, <laughs> hey, but, if it works for people, it works. Right. And um, but we also thought for spring for your altar, aquamarine. And I wanted mm. to include this one specifically because it's all about dealing with change and also literally has representation of the transition from winter into spring. Like you could not be more of a springtime altar stone if you tried. Um, it also has the very strong. And it's pretty. It is pretty, uh, but it has the strong water energy as well. And uh, of course, in the colder climates, uh, I feel like this has a place on a spring altar because things are thawing out. Creeks and rivers are flowing again and everywhere the trees are heaving a sigh of relief as the spring rains roll in. So, but, um, you know, kind of switching gears here, talking about some flowers that I thought would be good, um, specifically for Ostara, I think tulips are nice for a spring altar. Now, the transformation oh, they go yes, through... tulips are so beautiful. Uh, from being dormant over the winter and coming back to life in the spring, I think really is like a powerful representation of that spring energy. And they also have that very distinct egg shape when they close at night, which is so iconic for Ostara because she's the goddess of fertility and has traditionally been symbolized by eggs and rabbits. And, you know, just a little side note here, like somebody really needs to call the cops on the Catholic Church for stealing. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we've I'd like got... to sleep. I'd like to speak to the manager <laughs> of the Catholic um, is, Church, please. Is the Pope available? Um, Pope. I have some thoughts. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, we got tulips. I wanted to add about tulips, too. Just be careful if you have pets, because... A lot of those like really pretty like bulb flowers, the flowers themselves aren't necessarily super toxic, but the bulbs can be if they oh, eat yeah. them. So just like something to be aware of if you have pets that like dig stuff up, just be careful with them. But, you know, I think uh, in a vase on your altar are nice and yeah. tulips will, um, you know, if cared for properly, will last a good minute in a vase as well. Yeah, can and I'd like to just put a plug in for my very favorite kind of tulip. It's the parrot feather tulip, and I am obsessed with them. They're beautiful. They 
the edges of the petals are actually kind of like they're a little wavy so they do they actually look like feathers and they're they're just one of my favorite cut flowers of all time to get so I'm just putting a plug in there it's a little unusual but if you can find them holy shit they're beautiful oh yeah you sent me a picture of yours yeah didn't you grow some a few years ago or maybe no I got a bunch from a I got a bunch after a work event so I had like I stole a bunch of them <laughs> yeah, Do you remember I when I grew with... that really beautiful, um, like fire-colored tulip? I do, I do. Because it because the when the, when the buds came out, they were just like a slight pink color, but when they opened up, they were bright, bright red and orange in the middle, and they look like fire-colored. So of course, I'm an Aries, and I love anything that's got a fire print on it. Like Guy Fieri, I could take his whole wardrobe. I swear, but I mean, <laughs> um. Yeah. No, it's it, but no, really I love how much tulips change. Yes. And yeah, oh my like, gosh. From the time you see them to when they actually open, they like they can shift so much and that's also like big spring energy. Yes. And so you know just like other spring flowers that I think would be good on an altar, snapdragons. Snapdragons are coming into season. Um there's actually some right outside of where we're recording here that I thought looked really pretty, pretty purple snapdragons. Um, daisies. Daisies are nice. I mean, you can get daisies year round, but I, th- I feel like daisies have a spring vibe. You know what I mean? Like they just look very springtime. Oh, yeah. No, they really do. Like, I don't know. And they're very friendly. Like there's something very friendly about daisies. And like if I was going to make a flower crown, I would certainly put daisies in. I also love... I, I, and you know, maybe Shannon, you know this, but um, those flowers, the little wildflowers, we always called them brown eyed Susans. Oh, um, yeah. They're like, yeah. The, like um, they, they're brown eyed like, Susans. They're like little yellow flowers with like a brown nubbin in the middle. And those are, yeah, very nice spring flowers. They're in our favorite, like our favorite flower family, um, Asteraceae. They're in oh, that. Oh, right, family. right. So, and they're, they're in the same, yeah, they're in the same family as like, uh, daisies and stuff they're they're very pretty they're um rudbecca herta is the name like that's the uh latin name of them but they're they're super common especially in the south yeah 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 and then also speaking of things that are very common in the south the indian paintbrush mm. is such an iconic spring flower i mean if you're unfamiliar they almost look like a red blue bonnet so when they grow together like they have that kind of uh like red and blue they look they're like a similar shape um and it just looks nice but in Texas, they say you will get arrested if you pick blue bonnets. But I have done it many times and never had any trouble. So proceed with caution. Yeah, they're um, the Cast- Castileja is the name. They're actually named after the Spanish botanist who discovered them. If you, because I've always felt so weird about the Indian paintbrush like common name. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. It is. It is definitely what everyone calls them. Um, the Texas Indian paintbrush. It's the the one that grows in Texas is the Castileja um, Indivisa, which there are actually a few different kinds, but the ones that we grew up with are the Indivisa ones. But yeah, uh, they're they're really beautiful. I have also heard some people call them like coyote bush, which is kind of cute, but I've heard- I haven't heard that one. Know. Yeah, it's cute though. I know. And then you can also, also call them like a fun fact about fire. Indian paintbrush- yeah. Oh, see, I like that. I like Prairie that. Fire yeah, because it's like yeah. you, you know, it almost looks like a. Mm-hmm. But I was gonna say so with we, the Indian paintbrushes, though, the the prairie fire, if you will, um, 
they have the little yellow, I don't even know what it is. It's like a little nectar pod that comes out in the flower. Yeah, and you can eat um, it. And you can eat it. And it's got like a little sweet yep. little drop of nectar in there. And I remember me and my brother, when we were little kids, we would go out because we had the wildflowers that would grow in our yard. And we would decimate like the whole field of, of uh, prairie fire, if you will. And um, just to, just to get, you know, maybe a few ounces of nectar, we're like, you know. But then also, you know, kind of before we move on, um, talking about wildflowers in spring, I just want to pop in with a reminder for everyone that uh, lawns are bad for the environment. And dandelions, which are one of the first flowers to come out in the spring, represent a very important food source for the bees. So something to, you know, something to mull over. Uh, don't don't weed eat your yard. Yeah. You leave those for the and bees. And you know, they're also... They're also in the Asteraceae family. So if you want to talk about like this weird division, like when people decide certain things are weeds, it's like these are in the same family as daisies. Like they're really good for bees. And if you're in a place where, you know, there aren't a bunch of pesticides being poured and stuff like in your front yard, you can definitely pick them and like dandelion root and dandelion like leaves. Those make great teas. Oh, yeah. Dandelion root, uh, if you roast it the right way and grind it up in a coffee grinder, supposedly tastes a lot like coffee. It's It's got a very, like, it's got that kind of, like, bitter edge. I drink a lot of dandelion root tea because it's really good for digestive problems, mm-hmm. and I have a very delicate stomach. Um, and dandelion root tea is one of the things that I use to, like, you know, help with that. And it does have kind of, like, a very earthy, bitter edge to it so i could definitely see it being like a good if you want like an extra cup of coffee in the afternoon but maybe don't want any caffeine that could maybe scratch the same like itch as far as your palate is concerned oh yeah and then also you know like one of the things i wanted to throw in here as well is like i kind of think of this more of as like a late spring summer flower but poppies uh i love poppies it is the the state flower of california I actually have some poppies uh, on my Beatles half sleeve that I'm going to finish someday when I'm able to see my tattoo artist again. And I mean, you know, it's like everyone knows, you know, that poppies have opium, like small amounts in them, but really beautiful flowers. And they come in a few different colors. And, you know, if you're if you're jazzing up your altar with some fresh flowers and you do have poppies, you know, I think that would be a lovely addition as well. Yeah. And not not all poppies have like high levels of it either just like in case you feel a little weird about it but like it's i think it's the opium poppy is the uh somniferum poppy and that has like the highest concentration of it they all have like a little bit but you know Mm -hmm. not every poppy is like you're not gonna like be dorothy if you grow poppies at your house (laughs) right yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna pass out if you if you plant a few poppies in your yard i swear yeah, we promise you'll be fine. But <laughs> but yeah, you know, jazz up your altar for springtime. And, you know, it's like, think about the, the symbolism. Like, Persephone spends most of the year in the underworld and then come is able to come out in spring and bring all this beautiful life to us. And then Ostara is like a fertility goddess and is like giving birth to the new year, basically. And, you know, it's like really run with the theme because those are going to be like great themes this time of year. Make it your own. I mean, whatever wildflowers are in your area, I'm sure it's fine. I see baby's breath everywhere, too. 
this time of year. I yeah, I love Baby's Breath. I really hate that it got like totally shat on for so long because it's beautiful. It it really is. I I say the same thing, Shannon. It's like people are like, oh, it's kind of basic. Yeah, oh, Baby's Breath in a bouquet. But it's like, yes, Baby's Breath in a bouquet. Yes, Baby's Breath in a bouquet. It became so ubiquitous because it's fucking pretty. You fucking jerks, man. Let us have our Baby's Breath. Never mind that. It's easy to grow. It literally grows as a weed here. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think that's a great, I think that's a great one. And also just like, don't listen to the elitist haters who want to like make you feel guilty for liking basic stuff. Nick and I like basic bitch things all the time. Also, I love sweatpants. I love baby's breath. Okay. I like chicken nuggets sometimes. I'm wearing leggings as pants and I'm not going to (laughs) apologize. Like. And nor should you. No, they're fucking You should get some baby's breath printed leggings to wear around the house. Oh my God, I should. And I should just wear them in public as pants and just like, yes, come at me, bro. Um, Just come, come at me. I don't give a fuck. Right. Well, I love that, Nick. And on the theme of spring, like I wanted to talk about, you know, sort of a fertility goddess, an earth goddess. um, But I wanted to take a look at a deity that isn't from, you know, Europe or, uh, you know, from the Asia area, because I know we've also done a little bit of stuff with like Lunar New Year. But I actually want to talk about um, Asasiya, who is also known as like Mother Earth. Uh, It means like old woman. And she's the earth goddess of fertility of the indigenous Akon in Ghana on the Guinea coast. And so to sort of I mean, and I think I'm just as guilty of this as most people in the West. Uh, I wanted to kind of like orient people to Africa and where this is in Africa. So Guinea is the traditional name for the region of the West African coast that lies along the Gulf of Guinea. And so it's subdivided into like Lower Guinea and Upper Guinea. Lower Guinea is actually one of like the most densely populated regions in all of Africa. And it includes like Southern Nigeria, Benin, Togo, and stretches into Ghana. And it also includes like coastal regions. And then Upper Guinea is a lot less densely populated, but it actually stretches from like Cote d'Ivoire to Senegal. So if those are areas that you're maybe familiar with, I just want to like something that I'm working on is like getting better at geography and in particular in Africa, because especially in America, the entire like education system kind of just glosses over this entire continent as it's as if it's like one amorphous country, which is not true. Um, It's like Africa, you know, the country of Africa. Yeah, it's the country of Africa. That's all you need to know. (laughs) Yeah. And if you look at the globe, make sure you notice that it is smaller than North America. And that is 100 percent factual. Right. It's so dumb. And and I also want to cover this because um, something that I think is important for, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. to really just like reckon with is like also getting to know the cultures and like just learning more about the places that we literally stole humans from. Um, and something I think they think about close to 15 percent of the slaves that were sent, the enslaved peoples that were sent to the United States during that era um, are from the Akon like group of people. So there's there's a few different like uh, Akon is kind of like or Akan is uh, actually like a bigger group that kind of oversees a few different like tribal areas. So all of that to say this is actually where like not an insignificant percentage of people that ended up in the U.S. via the slave trade came from. Um, So the the ACAN, though, are actually, this is a really phenomenal thing to, like, learn about. So they actually do, of course, see, like, Earth as a feminine spirit. I think that's really common sort of across 
you know, wherever in the globe you're looking because of the associations with like fertility and like bringing forth life. Um, and they, they also personalize the earth as a mother since people do rely on it for survival. So again, I, I think it's interesting the more that we talk about these different deities, like how much there is in common all over the world. Um, and so in the Akan tradition, Asaseya is actually incredibly important. So through offerings in the form of like libation and dance, the earth spirit actually allows the living to maintain a connection with their ancestors. So in their understanding of this, it's like the earth belongs to the ancestors and by like keeping her happy and like paying her respect, they're able to keep that bridge with the people who came before. Um, and so in the tradition, Asasiya is the wife of uh, Naomi, um, who is the sky deity who created the universe. And Asasiya gave birth to two children, uh, Bia and Tano. And then she's also the mother of Anansi, who is the trickster god. Um, Anansi is the spider, if you're familiar with that African legend of the uh, the trickster spider god. Uh, and she's also considered uh, the divine mother of all the sacred high chiefs. So um, something I also thought was really interesting is she's named according to the Akan tradition of day naming. So Asasi means earth. Ya is female born on Thursday. So because most Akan believe that Naomi created the earth on a Thursday. And the Fonte people believe that the earth was created on a Friday. So to them, they call her Asase Efua or female born on Friday, which I just I thought it was really interesting. This like naming tradition because I hadn't really been familiar with day naming before and i i don't know i liked it um so of course yeah i've i've for, I, i've never heard of that honestly no no and i thought it was really interesting i was like i i don't know i really like it it's it's kind of cool i don't know what sunday is because i was born on a sunday um that would be mine but for both the akan and the Fonte i don't even people, know what day i was born oh really you should i know what I, I, I know what day i was born i could look at a calendar but <laughs> yeah i was sunday baby full moon on a sunday um so according to like the Akan and the Fonti, the day that the earth was created is also seen as like a very important day of rest. If that sounds familiar to any other religions or practices. Um, so things like tilling the land, burying the dead, or anything else that really disturbs the earth is not permitted. Like at all on that day. It's like so it's almost like the, it's, it's like the Sabbath. It's like the Sabbath exactly. day in Judaism. Exactly. It's like, like you're not a supposed Sabbath. to you're not supposed to do anything, really. Yeah. Yeah, you're not supposed to work. This is the day of rest. Um, and even during the rest of the week, though, something that I think is really interesting is they wouldn't do those things without asking permission. And so they gain the permission of Asasiya exclusively through the pouring of libation. So she sounds like a real cool lady. Um, and serious yeah, consequences are... I'd hang out with her. I know, right? Asasiya, she likes libation. Um, and there are serious consequences believed to happen to people who uh, violate that protocol. So I do love the value of consent here because if you don't ask her permission and you do it anyway you're gonna get some fucking bad shit coming your way a plus plus and she is honored in a ton of other like a can rituals as well so like during an infant's um outdooring or their naming ceremony once the complete name is given the child is actually placed on a mat to symbolize thanksgiving to asasiya for sustaining its life and to the ancestors for their eternal protection and guidance um, during funeral rites, libation is poured specifically to Asiya, not only to ask for permission for digging the grave, 
but to also ask her to accept and protect the body of the person to be buried. And she's also known as the upholder of truth. And in everyday situations, if you suspect someone of being less than truthful, you would challenge them to touch the tip of their tongue to the earth as evidence of their honesty, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. Yeah, and something great about this goddess, this deity, is that there are actually no shrines dedicated to Asasiya and no priests specifically serve her. Because to the Akan, she's not an abosom or a deity that people are able to like consult through divination. They believe that everyone has the ability to show her reverence, whether through libation or by keeping the earth clean, and that her abundance is accessible to everybody. And these abosoms or the these other deities, these are the ones that they would like interact with, like call on to do, you know, work with, pray to for specific things. So Sasiya is kind of like she's above all of the other gods and deities which i think is really beautiful i'm i'm so, kind of getting like um, a like a guan yin vibe with that where it's like the one who hears all of the prayers yeah yeah i just i i really like have non-specific been... like there for for everybody yeah exactly she is asasiya is for everyone. Everyone can talk to her. She doesn't need shrines because we all walk on the earth. And I just, I don't know, I really love the story of this goddess. And it is something, of course, like this isn't something that we're saying, like, you should incorporate this into your practice, because I don't think that's appropriate. But I do think it's (laughs) really, right. I do think it's really interesting, though, to like, learn about the gods and deities of cultures that we're not as familiar with, perhaps. And there are a lot of fascinating, like gods and deities and traditions out of the entire continent of Africa because it's a fucking huge place. So anyway, I've used uh, Ghana and Beyond History class, which is on ghanaandbeyond.com. There's a website called blackpast.org, which is really great. It gets into like the history of different like African regions and places that um, enslaved people were stolen from and uh, Wikipedia, of course. So it was, I don't know. I had a lot of fun with this. I know it's a little different than what we normally do but i think it's it's but i think it's very very appropriate too because we're actually recording on the the last day of february which is of course black history month so i think i think it's a great tie-in um and definitely something you know it's like it's like we know so much like really trivial stuff about weird european history and of course we know probably a lot about our local history but really human history mostly has happened in Africa thus far. And it's really kind of um, looking in the wrong direction to not learn about these things. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Like there's so much to learn. Like the Akan people have like, they work in like matrilineal um, structures. So like things are traced through the mother's name and the mother's family. But I thought it was really interesting to note that in this culture, the uncle is considered like the male head of the house. He actually has more power over the children than their father. And, you know, their father would have more power over his uh, his nephews and nieces as well, which I just thought was like fascinating. So there's there's so much to learn. It's, and so it's much an interesting kind of, uh, it's like unintentionally communal because it's like if, if you're taking care of your brother's kids and your brother's taking care of your kids, you know, it's like, that's a, that's a community right there. Yeah. And the Akan people, you know, they they did a lot to, like, fight off 
uh, you know, in like European invaders. And for a long time, they like held out and had a very large region and things were very cooperative among the tribes that were in, you know, all in this region together under the like larger umbrella of the Akan people. And it's, it's something that I always am wanting to do better at. And I think I want to encourage other people is like learning more about Africa and African history, because the picture that's painted for us, especially in the United States education system, is not at all the reality of what that continent is like no. or was like. And I, you know, I, I just want to say, like, growing up where we grew up, uh, a lot of people would go to, like, Africa for mission trips. Oh, and I God. think there's yeah. a lot of that going on in churches. So, like, we learn a little bit in history, but the, the way they kind of present it um for for people who are doing missionary work which uh work in quotation marks i mean it's like they're just bragging loudly on social media about their colonialism which like yeah oof. it's it's colonialism uh i mean there's plenty of organizations out there that are helping people get clean drinking water and electricity and things that they need uh in a charitable way um without forcing their religion down people's throats and uh yeah. you know for people from the middle class who live in the South, uh, a mission trip is really just a glorified vacation and um, poverty porn, really. I mean, they really do yeah. kind of love to take that photo of them with the, you know, the, the kid with the distended belly. And they're like, look, I'm helping and I'm spreading the word of the Lord while yeah. I do it. And it's just, it's really obnoxious. And, um, you know, so. I would, I would say on that note too, there's this really great Instagram page called um, No White Saviors, and I really recommend people follow it because they do a lot of great work about talking about the problems with like things like mission trips and like, you know, Western charities thinking they're helping and like coming in to like be the white savior and not realizing that they're doing things that are also actually making things worse for people within the economy and um, it's great. It's run by people of color who have so much more uh, knowledge and authority to talk about it than Nick and I. But I do really want to encourage people to check out that Instagram because it's great. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of also like that picture of the uh, the little the little baby and the, and the baby's just on the ground and the vulture is like just a few feet away. And just, you know, the, the sort of story in the picture is that the vultures is like waiting to eat the baby. And it's like, you know what, though, like the fact that you went all the way to another country and took that picture and instead of like picking that baby up and helping it out, you took a fucking picture like that's disgusting. Yeah, it's a very it's famous like, picture. I'm pretty sure it was a National Geographic. Um, That's that's white yeah. saviorism. And uh, but it's not, though, like, who are you helping taking that picture? Like you could instead of taking yeah, that white picture, saviorism is... you could have picked up that baby and gave it some water like. You're fucking a terrible right. person. And, and yeah, I, white saviorism is not actually being a savior. It's just like the term for white people who think they're saving Africans. Just to um, clarify yeah. in case anyone is like not familiar with that term that's listening. But yeah, I just, you know, like while we were talking about it, I was like, and another thing, that picture really uh, tells the story of this whole situation that we're talking about of like just white people yeah. being terrible. Yeah. And speaking of which. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a so, great segue so white people being terrible um so as i mentioned in the intro this might cause some of you to get full-on whiplash uh but it's something that is so important to shannon and myself that it does need to be covered i'm also going to preface this with a shocking confession 
Uh, crystals are just not a huge part of my practice personally. And that's why I was okay with taking this one for our questionable witchy practices segment. Uh, I'm personally of the opinion that forage supplies have that much more power anyway but also uh, a lot of the crystals that are out there have really bad juju surrounding them and uh in this year of 2021 you know it's uh not great um and the fact of the matter here is that and we're go on yeah i was just gonna say and we're all we're all learning and doing better and so you know, I also am not a huge like crystal witch. I do have some crystals, but mm-hmm. we wanted to talk about it because this is something that it's very easy, especially if you're in the West and you don't have to like look at these things. But it's important for all of us as like witches to be good stewards of the earth. So, but we also we get it. We own crystals. We don't want anybody to feel like ashamed, but this is a learning opportunity. And we all have to like, we all have to do better, and you can only do better when you know better. Right. And I mean, the fact of the matter is that quartz in its many forms and, you know, sort of all the cousins of quartz can be found on every continent and in almost every country. So there are ways to get it ethically. You do not have to buy quartz that was mined in India or Madagascar. But even our beloved quartz crystals are often the byproducts of industrial scale mining, um, which does happen all over as well. And we don't have to look too deep into mining to see some of the terrible conditions that miners in poorer parts of the world labor under. Um, so first of all, they do not get paid a fair wage for the work involved. Um, it's especially in Madagascar, where they have a lot of um, old volcanic deposits, um, which is where a lot of crystals come from, because you need heat, you need a hole in the ground, and you need steam. So... Old, volcan- old, old volcanic activity is often where you're going to find a lot of crystals because all of the ingredients are there to make them naturally. Um, so in Madagascar, they are literally paying people a dollar a day to lug, you know, like 20 or 30 pound bags of crystals that they have dug in hand dug tunnels, walking miles with these things, paying them a dollar a day. And then you go to the crystal shop and you're paying 80, 100 bucks for you know, a good piece of quartz that has like a good clarity or a, a good cut or whatever. And uh, it's just, it, it's not fair to that. Um, and it, here's the thing, though. It's not my job to tell you guys what to do. But if your feel-good crystal healing relies on an industry that is just as bad as blood diamonds and exists alongside a lot of those practices and mining operations as well, then you're definitely just not the woke spiritual person that you were intending to be. And that's harsh, but you need to hear it. I mean, I know so, so many just obnoxious, fake woke, like white spiritual quote unquote warriors who, you know, don't blink an eye, you know, buying crystals online without looking at the sources or just like, it's gross. You know what I mean? It's like, this is, this, is, uh, this is the kind of thing that it's like, it's something that's supposed to increase your like vibrational energy and clear negative energy. And it's just so mind boggling to me that people really are not thinking about like what goes into these things. Because if we are practicing witches, we know that we are putting our energy into everything. And, you know, that's a really dark place for these 
things to be coming from. I mean, little kids in India die trying to dig up crystals. And then also, these big companies, these big industrial operations, don't have to declare their profits for byproducts. So it's often very hard to trace the sourcing of these things. So it's almost like you really want to know where your stuff's coming from. Uh, I mean, yeah, I- and and the big commercial things too. It's like I we obviously we want to be clear. We understand these are not like the big despoilers of the environment that like the commercial mining for like the nickel and silicon and gold and aluminum that are in all of our phones and cars. We know that they're not causing that level of environmental damage, but it is something that I also feel like we have so much more direct control over how we source these things. It's we can't really control where the metal in our iPhone comes from. But we can do a little extra legwork if we want to buy and work with crystals. Yes. And I guess kind of what I was saying, though, is that as far as where um, following a supply chain starts to break down is that there is really no oversight of if you do run uh, a lithium mine and you find a vein of smoky quartz or amethyst or or something which is, I mean, these things do not naturally um, coincide with each other. But, I mean, if you're doing a strip mine and you're covering, like, acres and acres of land just digging, there, there does, it does increase the odds that you might find certain deposits of things. And when they do, they're going to sell them. But there is no regulation anywhere in the world that says they have to, like, declare that their you know truckload of unprocessed crystals going somewhere else they they do not have to say hey this came from such and such industrial mining operation so they send the truck wherever the truck goes probably somewhere to be cleaned and processed and then you know it goes somewhere else from there and it goes somewhere else from there and it's like i was literally trying to follow like one single supply chain just to do the research on this and it breaks down like it's almost impossible unless you actually know someone who is like digging these things up themselves basically and that's how it used to be in the old days like i was gonna say that's an important note too nick it's like so many of these people it's like not that it's necessarily some big conspiracy a lot of buyers and like a lot of sellers aren't buying directly from mines it's like the tucson mineral and gem show in Arizona Mm -hmm. is like the biggest place that people from all over the world come to. And that's why it is. It's so hard because a lot of these places, like they don't know where they came from because they just bought them from another seller. So it's like, it is, Mm -hmm. we know it's challenging for sure. Yes. But, but like, like I had said earlier, a lot of things in the quartz family, which does include amethyst and citrine and tourmaline, um, you know, sort of like the cousins of it. So if you were to find a place that had a lot of quartz, you would find probably nearby one or more of these other crystals. And those are on every continent. So you're in luck. You know, the the thing is, is to look at which countries do not have the protections in place for, for the workers. And the biggest violators of human rights on this issue, India and Madagascar. Of course, we could say 
uh, South Africa as well. I think Myanmar and um, Democratic Republic of Congo are two that also need to be on like the big no-no list. Yeah, and that's I mean, Democratic Republic of Congo uh, also is you know part of the whole like blood diamond thing. So we we kind of called this like blood crystals, but it's real. It really is that bad, people. And I mean, again, you know, with the volcanic activity, that's also how diamonds are made. So if you think about Elon Musk and like his emerald mine, which is why he was rich in the first place before Tesla and all of that, um, they do get crystals out of those mines that are not precious gemstones that are crystals that you might use. Um, And I mean, those are not good conditions that those people are working under absolutely not so um but i mean if you get something from north america mexico uh canada really um yeah i was gonna say canada finland argentina botswana spain and the philippines are places that all have really strong sustainable mining regulations so you know it's like if you're if you're just looking at the country of origin, like that is a good place to start. And like I said, you know, like on a metaphysical level, it really doesn't make a lot of sense at all that all of this trauma is happening so you can do energy work. That's so wonky. Like, like no amount of smoke cleansing or holy water or anything is going to erase the fact that people might have died to get these into your hands. So yeah, it's questionable. Or if it's in Myanmar, the... The money that goes to the fucking crystal conflict is causing like all of that money is going towards like ethnic cleansing and a huge like heroin use epidemic that's causing an HIV problem in Myanmar. It's like, right, it's it's important. Like it's it's really important to do better about this. And the problem is, I really think it's just a lot of people just don't give a shit. And that sucks. And it's like, and, and and again, it's like this fake woke thing where you're like, I love crystals. I'm so woke. But miss me with all of that talk about genocide. I don't want to hear about that because I am love and light. And I listen to Tame Impala and go to music festivals. And yeah, it's like they, do, they just don't give a shit. Um, but, you know, some good guidelines to follow. Country of origin. If you absolutely need to engage in buying these things shop locally and that doesn't mean shop at your local hobby lobby or michael's i mean like literally a locally owned shop is going to be the best and do not be afraid to ask about the sourcing anyone who wants your money and we're talking about crystals which are expensive um should be open to explaining at least some of the supply chain basics to you before purchasing I mean, if we're ta- if we're dropping hundreds of bucks on crystals, do not be afraid to ask questions. Um, and we know that not everyone has access to a good local witchcraft shop. So what you're going to want to do is try to find an online supplier that focuses on sustainability. And I would say I found at least five shops on Etsy that listed their sources and were transparent about where their stuff is coming from. So if you're looking it up on Etsy, look up sustainable crystals, look up um, eco crystals, look up environmentally friendly crystals, because the environmental part is an aspect of it as well. I mean, I think human suffering is um, 
more of a pressing issue. But I mean, if we're selling crystals that are part of, you know, like a surplus in a lithium mine, that's still really bad for the planet. So, um, you know, but yeah. And there's um this company called Rock Paradise that I think is really um they're worth checking out because they they work to make sure they're like getting their crystals and stuff directly from mines, which is important because that also it's kind of like when we t- look at like fair trade coffee, when you're looking at people that are going directly to the source, that means that they're having they, they're paying more. So the workers are actually getting the money instead of the money going to like some super corrupt middleman who's going to charge an arm and a leg at the fucking Tucson Gems and Mineral show while paying people a dollar a day to like die. Yeah, and it's yeah, it, it coffee is actually a really great analogy here because you can absolutely get fair trade coffee, and you know a lot of people would be like, oh well, you know, I just mm, it's just coffee. Like, what's the big deal? And it's like people die on coffee plantations, and then they don't get paid for it, and there's no worker yeah. protection. And I, I'm sorry, but considering how much human misery is on the line, there's no excuse. And there's nothing more important than preventing that. And as an intuition-driven witch, I always push the idea on this show that substitutions are almost always fine. It's all about the energy that you're putting into your craft, and you certainly do not want to muddy that by exploiting suffering. Not to mention... Yeah the environmental impacts that some of this mining has. And nobody is saying, throw away every crystal that you've ever bought, or that we are going to attack you or dislike you even for your wire wrap jewelry, or having your crystal collection out in your house. Um, But this is something that does matter, and something that we should lead, we as the witchcraft community, should be leading the way on being mindful of what's at play here. Because, I mean, all of these trendsters, they're not going to be into this shit in two years. But we are. So we need to be the ones that are pushing the shops to talk about sourcing. We need to be the ones that are outspoken about it. Because in a few years' time, we're still going to be the ones that, you know, need to acquire these things. So do the work, people. That's what witchcraft is. Doing the fucking work. Do the work. And I think it's important to, again, I know it's like, it is very harsh and it's very important that we like face the reality of this. And this is, this is an invitation to do better. This is not like a personal attack on anybody. Like we just, we are working to do better all the time. And as soon as you learn more, then, you know, you, you need to start making your decisions from a place with that new knowledge. And so that's what we're doing. We're learning, we're growing, and we want you guys to come along with us because it is like really heinous the things that happen. It's like seven year old kids shouldn't be dying so we can have like a cute piece of like jade. Exactly. And it's like if you're literally using these things to do energy work and dispel negative energies from your body, from your house, something to protect you, I, it, it does not make sense to me that you wouldn't care. <laughs> like what other energies are attached to the physical crystal like yeah mind-blowing well thank you nick i think it's like it was it's a dark one but it's super important and i know both of us really care about 
ethics in our practice. And so hopefully, hopefully if this is news to any of you, you know, it helps you like adjust what you're already doing. Again, like there are ways to get ethical crystals if you want them, but you have to take an extra step. And that extra step, it really is like nothing compared to a child dying. So it it really is not. And also this is a situation where it is, again, totally okay to ask questions. Yeah. Like ask questions from the people you're buying this stuff from. Like, and if they don't know, that that should say something to you. Yeah. It's like the woman that runs one of the places that I go that runs a metaphysical shop. She like can tell you where her crystals come from. Like, and I was asking, I ended up getting um a few different crystals while I was there. And she was like pulling out the like packaging she keeps them in that have like the country of origin and like where they're coming from. And it's like, you can find those people. They exist. So they exist and you can find them online. Yeah. Yeah. So best of luck to you. And I'm a little I'm a little heated. So I'm just I'm just gonna take a little sip of my my little wine spritzer. And yeah. I'm so glad and that we're, we're gonna, doing like Yeah, we're gonna do something fun. Good, we're doing something fun after this. But you know, it's like it's it's okay to be heated about things like this too. You know, it's like it's better to be heated than look the other way. Yeah. And it it should probably piss you off that small children are dying and being marred for life so Gwyneth Paltrow can sell you a $90 egg for your cooch. Like, <laughs> yes. You know. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Goop on... came up. Goop came Fuck up goop. on the, on the, uh, like, what, like, what are some of the, the dark sides of the crystal industry? And it's yeah. like, that, look. Y'all, don't give Goop your money. Don't give Goop your money. And look into it because that, it, yeah. like, we could do a whole episode about that, but we're not. We're going to talk about pet safe houseplants. So, yeah, on a much, much lighter note, which I think was good, we wanted to like end on something that was like a little more happy. Um, but also, you know, I think that we've heard from everyone. Oliver, one of Nick's cats, is a plant eater, and it seems like Faye is as well. She's a she's a plant gal. Um, yeah, I mean, Nick- I she didn't she didn't eat my plant um it's more like she disassembled it and put it all over my house so fair i would say um she was she was trying to decorate even um if i'm gonna stick up for her here (laughs) an eye for interior design Mm -hmm. well samson my one of my cats is also like uh, a cat he's like a cat that will eat anything green that comes in the house and you know nick Mm -hmm. and i both do have kittens now so Faye and you know Hexus what better time to like talk about pet safe plants and you know I do want to of course like disclaimer up at the top like animals are all very different so you need to get to know your pets like Samson if I bring anything green into the house that doesn't that isn't like covered in spikes he will eat it Ivan you know my late kitty cat he didn't give a shit about plants so you you also need to like get to know your pets and you know that's something that that you just have to learn on your own. Um, and something else to like keep in mind is that non-toxic plants are things that are labeled as pet safe. They can still cause things like irritation, stomach upset, like rashes. The ASPCA, when they're talking about plants that are, you know, quote unquote pet safe, they're focusing on things that won't cause severe illness or death. Um, and most of this also yeah, I mean, depends it, what, what, on the amount. I was going to say like an interesting way to think about this uh, is that like, St. Augustine grass would not kill you as a person if you ate it, but it would give you a really bad tummy ache and you might throw up. Yeah, exactly. And again, all of this 
also depends on the amount consumed. So like a little cat taking, like my cat taking a little bite out of something is really different than him like eating an entire like handful of salad leaves, essentially like eating a full salad of the plant. Those are different situations. Um, So I did want to subdivide this into a few categories though, for things that you might be thinking about. So I've talked about plants with like cool, colorful foliage, things that have a good impact with their with their leaves, plants that flower, and then things that can be like larger statement plants. So as far as like foliage plants go, um, a big one, Calathea lancifolia, or the rattlesnake plant. So this plant has like the long leaves that are light green with dark green markings, you know, that kind of look like a snake. The underside is like purplish, maroonish, um, and the leaves are kind of a little wavy. So they have like a really gorgeous like big impact and they can get pretty large when they're you know when they're healthy and happy um and they're great in lower light settings they do like to be kept moist though and they enjoy a bit more humidity um calatheas can also be a little bit finicky about minerals and water so you might need distilled water if you're having a lot of trouble with it um but they're not gonna kill your pets so maybe it's worth the trouble Um, I also would be (laughs) remiss if I didn't bring up the humble but gorgeous spider plant. Uh, I think hanging arrangements are a really great option here. You know, you can make a pretty like big impact with the waterfall effect from the spiderettes on a spider plant. I was actually talking to Nick about doing like a collection of three hangers with spider plants at different levels. That way you get this gorgeous like big sort of statement with the waterfall of the spiderettes. They can be gorgeous. Uh, Calathea orbifolia. It has like big round leaves and some like subtle lighter green striping. It's another great Calathea. You do also have some succulent options. So like Haworthia and Echeveria are both safe. Um, You can also look at something like a burrow's tail. Or if you have a space that has like higher light, you know, you could think about doing like a full succulent arrangement with uh, even things like lithops are okay. So there's a lot of options. Um, Again, depending on the pet, you could also get something that's maybe more spiky. Some pets won't touch a spiky cactus. So you could include that with like maybe some Echeveria and a little spiky boy and some Lithops and make a whole little like a little arrangement on a bright windowsill. Uh, Air plants are also a phenomenal option. There are so many beautiful like air plant hangers and wall mounts that you can find. And they're they're super easy to care for, but they do still need light. So don't put them in total darkness. Like for some reason, I guess, because they, they're not like in soil and they don't have super visible roots. I think people forget that they're alive. You can't like put them in a closet. They're still a plant. Um, so to water them, you actually just like yeah, soak yeah, them yeah. once a week. <laughs> right. It's like it, it still needs light and water. Um, so you'll soak them once a week and then you want to drain them upside down on a napkin afterwards so they don't get water trapped in them and rot uh, because that's actually I lost one of my air plants that way I didn't drain it enough and it rotted and that was my bad I'm learning Um, and they can actually flower too when they're really happy which bonus you know I actually Um, um, just to just to hop in here though my grandma had a really beautiful air plant that she had and um, it was like a little souvenir that she got somewhere and it lived in a shell like cute and she would she would she would she would water it and uh, and soak it. She had it for several years, but it did it did the little flower thing, and they were yeah. they were so tiny, they were so I tiny know, little so flowers. Cute. And they're cute little babies. Um, bird's nest ferns also a great option. 
those, these are the ferns that have like kind of squiggly leaves and they're very vibrant green. They really, they enjoy high humidity, like all ferns and they can tolerate like lower light. So they're a really great choice for like a bathroom or a kitchen with a window. Uh, Venus fly traps, which are such a fun carnivore. Um, I actually do want to make a bog garden sometime in the next year. That's one of the things I want to make and have like Venus fly traps and maybe some pinguicula and some little pitcher plants. And Venus, Venus fly traps are really great, but when they come in the cube of death that you can find them in where it's like, look at this little cube of plants, um, they're going to die if you leave them in that. So, you know, uh, take them out of that you, and something that uh, you I know, actually my oh hold on hold on uh before we talk because my friend daniel uh at work who is actually a listener so they might even hear me talking about this was just telling me today that their friend came up with a oh my gosh what is it um 3d printed blueprint to make a bug garden and you put your Somehow you put like a container of water underneath it and huh. it it has been able it's like to keep the humidity correct and all of that um to keep a pitcher plant alive for a year. So it's something that he's talking about rolling out and Daniel was asking um if I would like one. So I am thinking about actually getting one because they look pretty cool and if I do get one I will post a picture on the Instagram. So <laughs> yeah, they're really cool. I love, so I have, um, I have a giant pitcher plant on my front porch. His name is Gomez. Um, he is gorgeous. I, I love carnivorous plants and they do need constant moisture. So, you know, that totally makes sense with that design. And it's very important to not fertilize carnivorous plants like that will kill them dead. Uh, and they need at least four hours of direct sunlight. So like, you know, carnivorous plants do need light. And they very rarely actually need to be physically fed, especially like fly traps if they're outdoors because they'll catch things. Um, but if you do need to feed them, you can do like a little bit of like mealworm or even a cricket. But then you kind of have to like, once you set it off and it closes, you also kind of need to like give a little massage on it, you know, away from the teeth to kind of like make sure that it knows that the thing is still alive. Essentially, it kind of tricks the plant into thinking like the mealworm is alive when you massage it. Because if you if it doesn't think it's alive, it'll just open back up and won't eat it. So um, you can give them like cute little food massages. And I've, I've always thought it was really fun that Venus flytraps are actually native to the US because so few cool houseplants are. Um, and they're native uh, to the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. Their natural habitat has been like totally decimated. And for a long time, there was a lot of like worry about poachers with carnivorous plants. But at this point, Venus flytraps are so widely circulated that that's very, very little concern if you're buying a Venus flytrap. So anyway, but they are they are native to the U.S. Uh, the polka dot plant is also a really stunning plant. They're from Madagascar. They can get up to like three feet tall and they stop around a foot indoors. They come in a bunch of different colors, like, you know, green leaves with white splotches. My favorite are the pink ones. They're like green with like really huge pale pink, pink um, dots so that they kind of look like almost like that. Uh, the TV static, that amount of like polka dotting. Okay. Kind of hard. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of hard for some people to keep alive. I think you just have to like really watch the watering with them. Um, but they're beautiful. 
Peperomia, a lot of Peperomia. Uh, Peperomia prostrata is good if you want a vining plant. But here I've got watermelon Peperomia. I do have like a tiny little watermelon Peperomia plant. And the leaves on these plants are semi-succulent. They're light green with dark green striping. And the stems are this like really pretty purple too. They do need bright indirect light and they like to dry out quite a bit between waterings. But the Peperomia family, like Peperomia obtusifolia is really beautiful. You can get um, Peperomia obtusifolia variegata if you want something that's got like cream accents. Uh, Again, the Peperomia prostrata kind of, um, it's the string of turtles is what it's called. And they're beautiful in their vining. So the Peperomia family is like a great one to go to. Uh, Staghorn ferns are also a really good option. They're, They're commonly mounted too. So they're usually just like totally out of reach. But they are one of the ferns that's also non-toxic. And they're really like, you know, they're really beautiful. It's kind of, I've I've heard them kind of referred to as like, uh, they're like deer antlers for vegans. Because <laughs> they, they do oh, kind of yeah, have yeah. that like antler look. Um, but, you know, like all ferns, they like humidity, lower light areas. This is another great bathroom plant. I actually really want one for my bathroom, a mounted one for the wall that's like on the list of, you know, plants that I want. But they're great. They're really beautiful. Pretty low maintenance for ferns, too. Um, if you're someone that loves tropical vibes, bromeliads, uh, they come in like basically every color imaginable. One of my favorites is like green and it's got these kind of like red, almost tiger looking stripes on them. They do need a lot of airflow. So these are a really good choice for like a patio or a balcony somewhere that it's going to be able to get like a good amount of indirect light and also not you know, have too stagnant air around it because they can get crown rot really easily. Uh, And the blooms last for months. And while the plant itself doesn't live for a super long time, they actually like push out babies in the pot. So you can basically have a plant pretty consistently. It'll be at different stages. But, you know, I think for a long time, people were like, oh, you buy these, it's temporary, then you just throw it away. And it's like, well, no, 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 it'll, it will make other plants, you just have to like, take care of it. Um, Another pilea plant, uh, Baby's Tears, pilea glauca. It looks beautiful in a hanging basket. It needs to stay pretty wet. So, you know, you want to water at the first time, uh, the first sign of wilting, but it needs, it needs filtered light. You know, it's, they're really pretty. They're very delicate, tiny little green leaves. Like that's why they're called Baby's Tears because they're so, they're like very small, small little circles. They're cute as fuck. Um, Prayer plants are also beautiful. I love mine. Their leaves actually move up and down throughout the day, which is where the name comes from. And when they raise all the way up, they have like a maroon kind of purpley bottom to their leaves. And one of the things that people think the one of the reasons they think the Marantas might have, you know, evolved to do that is because when they're up straight like that, they're kind of hard to see in the dark. So it could kind of like help hide them a little bit. And that's one of the potential one of the theories behind why they have those like very drastically dark bottoms of the leaves. And they come in, you know, a bunch of different types of colors. There's the very classic like red Maranta, which I have, but there's also like a lemon lime variety. If you, if you're someone that likes things, you know, more subtle than the big maroon bottoms, these are like green and they have kind of like almost a, it's like a chartreuse, almost yellow striping on them. They're also gorgeous. Um, And I can't I, get I, I, this. I feel like chartreuse is an underrated color. Oh God. I love, I love me a chartreuse plant. I'm coming. I've, I'm just like coming for them. I want every chartreuse plant in the world. 
I've got my like neon pothos and my neon philodendron and I'm like can every plant just be this color please I mean no if only actual chartreuse tasted as good as like the color it's a good color it's not a good drink though no oh god no No, that's that's my Uh, opinion (laughs) I, I mean I I agree with that opinion so I of course, Hoyas are also a safe bet, like Hoyas in the Carnosa family, Hoya Carii. But I couldn't get through like the foliage section without talking about like a former Insta star, Pilea peperomioides, the Chinese money plant, UFO plant, pancake plant, the ones that have those really beautiful coin shaped leaves. They used to be super fucking expensive for no reason because they're very easy to propagate. But, um, they're, they're gorgeous. They're also pet safe. They do like um, bright and direct light and to dry out quite a bit between waterings. So for these, I usually just like check the leaves to figure out when it's ready for a drink, kind of like I do with my succulents, um, because the leaves will get a little bit more flexible when they need to be watered. So that's the foliage section. The other sections are shorter, I promise. So as far as flowering plants go, you think <laughs> about like African violets, not just for our grandmas anymore. They're making like a very well-deserved comeback, um, but they don't do well in drafty areas. But with some bright indirect light, you know, you can really have some like gorgeous flowers inside with these. Um, Gloxinia are beautiful. They're from Brazil. They're great for a sunny windowsill. Um, They come in bright shades of like purple, pink, red, and blue. They do need to stay moist and they need to be fed about every two weeks. They're kind of a heavy feeder. orchids are pet safe uh they like partial light waters watering weekly in the cooler months and like twice a week in the warmer months but like don't fucking put ice on your plant this is like a very weird thing that somehow took off because it's like just the right amount of water for your orchid like no you don't want somebody to like just drop ice on you don't fucking do that to your plants it's like (laughs) it shocks them um and honestly orchids like to dry out a bit more than i think people uh then people give them credit for. They're much more succulent-like. So you can really wait for them to dry out a good bit before you water them again. Um, and then, of course, the cr- Christmas cactus or Schlumbergera. You know, it blooms for several re- weeks around the holidays. Um, there's also a type that's called, like, the Thanksgiving cactus. And its hanging branches are, like, these, like, beautiful, like, glossy green leaves that have, like, these bright, colorful petals at the end when they're blooming. And they can get pretty big as they mature, but... I I find the foliage, like the shiny green leaves, I find it very pretty. So I think they're worth it to have year round, even when they're not in bloom. And then last but not least, I want to talk about... Those are, uh, I was going to say, those are very easy to get as well. Like the Christmas cactuses, you definitely see those at nurseries all everywhere. Yeah. And they're so pretty. They're really, really pretty. And then, so for the last segment here, or for the last section, I should say, I wanted to talk about like larger impact plants. Like maybe you have a big room or like you want something that just like really makes a statement. You'd rather have one big plant than a bunch of little plants. Um, You can think about like a parlor palm. They're not going to get huge, but they can get a few feet tall and they do have a really good impact. It, It does need a few hours of like indirect, like good indirect light a day. It will burn with direct sunlight. Um, And you don't want to like, keep it sopping but palms do like to drink a little bit more than people think you know they're not uh they're they're not like a cactus so you do want to let it like the first few inches dry out but don't like 
you know, don't neglect it forever. I've seen some people that just like don't water their palms. And I'm like, well, that's why it's dying. Um, <laughs> and then there's uh, that's the why ponytail. It's, uh, that's why it's not doing so well. Right. That's and There's a reason. It doesn't look great. Um, the ponytail palm, which I think has a really interesting profile. It's actually not a palm either, but it's like got the thick, almost like ginseng woody like base. And then it has like a little tuft of leaves out of the top, like like a ponytail. I just think they're fucking precious. Um, and they kind of. I, look like I always think those kind of look like pineapples. I can see that in like I a weird way. They're like no. they're like reminiscent yeah. of a pineapple. Yeah, yeah. No, I like I I like that. I could see it. Um, oh, I, back on the... and 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 I say that because I would like to eat the bulb that ponytail palms. Uh, grow even though i know yeah you, you shouldn't it it doesn't taste like a in my head though in my head i feel like it tastes like a pineapple i mean a girl can dream right <laughs> um <laughs> back on the ferns boston ferns are they can get fucking big and they're pretty low maintenance for ferns too like we actually have some that grow outdoors here in park la brea but Boston ferns could be great for like a slightly lower light corner if you have like a big room though because you know, I know if you've got a big space, putting a tiny plant in it feels weird. Boston fern could be a great option for you. And then last is the um, areca or eraser. I have heard this said so many ways. Palm. Um, these palms can actually get up to five feet tall. So they are like a statement, capital S statement piece. They do need bright indirect light. So like they're perfect for a few feet away from either a south or a west facing window. And they don't want to get too dry in the growing months. Again, like palms are not cactuses. Um, and so this is one of the few palms too that can actually handle like a good trim without dying. So you can you can keep these guys alive for like 10 years indoors. Like most palms, you're probably going to get about two years out of. And palms notoriously are like, they don't like getting their leaves cut. Like they, they don't do well with a good trim. Uh, but areca or eraser palms are... are different in that sense which is nice so i wanted to just go through like literally just a list of some big common ones that are not good for your pets that can kill them dead um easter lilies are very poisonous to cats um pothos skindapsis snake plants chinese evergreen dumb cane dracaena which also look like cat toys and this is actually what lucky bamboo is lucky bamboo is a type of dracaena um, asparagus fern. I know most ferns are okay, but like asparagus fern is a no-no. Um, ficus, like your fiddly fig, rubber trees, schlafera, uh, um, philodendron, alocasia and colocasia, the sago palm, calancho, English ivy, all types of monstera, syngonium, the senecio plants, so like string of pearls, string of bananas, and bird of paradise. Those are all no-nos. Um, there's many more, but I felt like these were kind of like the most common that you see around. But something that I would also encourage you to do, because you might not think about it, but like if you bring home a bouquet of cut flowers, also check that. Like chrysanthemums are poisonous to cats and they show up in a lot of arrangements. So just remember, it's not just your house plants. Like if you're bringing cut flowers in and you have a pet that eats plants, they're going to go for those too. Uh, you can also think about like maybe a small herb garden if you want something that like your cat can maybe play with. I know some people have had good luck like planting catnip and that way their cats have something they can get into. Uh, they're also like pets are also fine with things like basil, dill, lemon balm. 
So, you know, it's something you could use for like magic, cooking, and your pet can snack on. So there are, you know, there's lots of great options. Uh, the ASPCA website is really amazing. They have a great uh, table that breaks down things that are poisonous for cats and dogs. And you, there's a lot of overlap, but it is important because there are some that are much more poisonous for one than the other. And mostly just like, you know, work with your pet and you can have like pet free zones of your house. You know, it's like the cats are not allowed in our bedroom. And that's where I have like my Monstera. You know, it's like there are ways to like still enjoy plants, but also take care of our pets. So for this, I use like Architectural Digest, um, Plantarina, of course, the ASPCA and a lifetime of experience with a plant muncher. Well, uh, you know, you you couldn't have said it better at the beginning it's also about knowing your pet because if your pet does not care about plants then you can you can get away with a little bit more but i mean you know it's like oliver will literally eat anything green or purple for that matter just any anything in a pot he's like i need to eat that i need to eat this samson is the same all right so kind of rounding out the episode here uh we have our taroscope uh and I actually felt like this was pretty appropriate sign to get for such a spring-themed episode. Uh, but this week, our taroscope is for Taurus. Uh, Taurus is, of course, ruled by the planet Venus. Venus is the goddess of beauty and love. And that's big spring energy. So, uh, totally. this week... No, I, I love that. That's perfect. We have, for you, all of you Taurians out there, the Five of Wands reversed. And this can mean that you're going through an internal struggle and might be surrounded by people who have very strong opinions, which is kind of pushing you to keep your struggle to yourself and figure it out on your own. Uh, There might be a slightly passive-aggressive instinct at play here as well, uh, where you're avoiding sort of an inevitable conflict by playing dumb or being especially coy about your true feelings. And uh, I would personally advise you to tap into your bullish energy, all you Tauruses out there, because I know you have it. And the signs point to you being able to see clearly and take a moment to breathe if you're able to face what is troubling you head on. Um, And the only other option here really is stewing in it, which we all know you're good at hiding your emotions, but... um, Which do you think is going to feel better ultimately? Um, That's my question for you guys. So it's really up to you. Um, But I think it's a good question for that's a good question for Taurus. Yeah, it's like we all know that you're good at pushing your emotions down. But what's going to feel better? You know, facing something head on and taking a moment to breathe or continuing to push it down. Um, But, this, you know, this card does kind of indicate that you're going to have that moment to take a breather and regroup um but you you actually have to deal with your whatever this internal struggle is before you can have that that moment's going to be nice though you know what i mean it's going to be nice when you get there yeah but um you you might not get there unless you uh it's kind of kind of a theme here you got to do the work so always got to do the work you always got to do the work That brings us to the end. So the bitter end. What a what an episode. <laughs> yeah, and you know, to everyone out there, 
we would love to hear from you. Uh, I, we say this every episode, but we really would love to hear from you. When people write in, I get so freaking excited. We are at Wands and Franz Pod on Instagram. Give us a follow. Send us a message. I'm not even shitting you. I, we will reply. You know, if you got a question, if you got we a comment. We always reply. We always reply. And we have become very good friends with the fans that have hit us up so far. So, you know, if you want to be friends with us, you should hit us up. But also, uh, you know, download the podcast. It really helps us with numbers. Um, you don't have to keep it. You know, you could download it and then listen to it and then delete it off your phone. You know, like that helps. If you can't give yeah. us a rating, um, you could also, I mean, if you're going to hit us up, uh, send us an email at onceandfronspod at gmail.com. Um, get our address, send us a bag of rubies. Wouldn't hate that. Yeah. Invitations to Atlantis. Really, I think any precious gemstones that have been ethically sourced. Of it's course. ethically sourced rubies because that's that's really where it's at now. If you send me blood rubies, I will send them back to you. Yeah. Along with like lots of bad vibes. With bad in vibes. To those. And a strongly worded letter. So <laughs> nice. Well, I think that's all we have this week, y'all. Yeah. And you know, it's like uh yeah, be be careful out there with Pisces season, you know. Um don't let your emotions get the best of you. Yeah. So I guess to all the bitches out there, Nick, what do we say? Uh, we always say blessed be bitches. Blessed be bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. <laughs>